Now we have begun uh, a series looking at the epistle to the Philippians. Uh, the reason we're in Acts is just to get a background of the foundation of that church. And the Holy Spirit has much to say in this one chapter of Acts as to how he brings a church together and uses uh, the ministry of the word uh, to found and strengthen a church. We really see the church in action um, in Acts chapter 16 and there's much we can learn from it. And we saw that it began with Paul receiving a vision um, in the night when they were in Troas. You see that in verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded. That word pleaded there is really beg, someone begging to come and help. Paul's plans were uh, frustrated. They were intervened with by God. He hadn't planned to go that direction at all. He had other plans that were godly and wise in how he was going to keep spreading uh, the gospel and founding churches in that region of Asia. But what we found here was that he was led northwest to the very edge of what is today Turkey, um, where it meets the Mediterranean Sea. And they stayed in a place called Troas, which is a seaport. He's there with Silas. They have picked up Timothy from a nearby church, and Paul has begun to train him. And we think, too, Luke at least met Paul in that city of Troas, where Luke joins the group. Before this passage, when Luke is writing, he's speaking about them all over the time. And all of a sudden, in this section, he begins to refer to the group as we. That means he himself has joined this. And they go over the sea from Troas, and they sail west, and they stop at an island briefly in verse 11. We ran a straight course to Samothrace, that's a small island in the Mediterranean Sea, and the next day they came to Neapolis. So they're sailing all of that time, and they eventually reach Neapolis, which is on the coast of what we call today Greece. And they travel inland just a few miles and come to Philippi. So we see Paul, he sets foot for the first time in what is today called Europe, as the gospel spreads throughout the known world. It's come all the way over the sea uh, to North and South America because of this initial expansion that happens in this passage. So we see Paul in a new field of labor here, preaching and sharing the gospel in cities that he's not been to before and in this capacity. So we have Paul, Silas, Timothy and Luke arriving in Philippi and in verse 12 that this was the first or a first town in that province. This is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. So they come to this place and we're told here it's the first or a first city. Now, that doesn't mean it's the biggest city um, in that area of Greece or that it's the capital, um, because it certainly wasn't either of those things. But when it says it's a foremost or first town or city in that region, it just means it's a significant place. And in that particular area of Greece, it may have been the most important place. Obviously, there are other places like Corinth, um, Athens, and Thessalonica, 
which are very large places and very influential financially, politically, philosophically, and all of these things. But Paul chooses to go to Philippi, and he's going to... Philippi's up here, and he's going to come down after that. After he spent time in Philippi, he's going to make his way south down to Corinth and that region. And eventually he'll then sail back to Israel. So he's gone from Israel, and he's going in a big circle to come back to Israel. And Philippi's the first place in Europe in that circle. Now we'll have to understand a few things about it because we're going to be looking at the letter of the Philippians. It's a Greek city and it was originally under the reign of a king called Philip II of Macedonia, a very powerful king. And that's where the city gets its name uh, from its king. But when Greece gave way to the Roman dominance as the great empire of the world, which it was at this time, the city of Rome and its huge, um, unparalleled empire. Philippi, like all the other places, obviously passed into Roman rule, and it became Roman. It would have retained some of its Greek culture and everything, but it very much became a Roman uh, place. Now, it's far from Rome itself, which is across in Italy, And what the Roman Empire did was pick cities throughout its empire to make kind of capitals and where it could exert its control then over all of these countries. And Philippi was one of these places. It was made into a colony of Rome. So even if you were Greek and you lived there, you would have had to then conform to being a Roman. It was the Roman army that was in charge. It had two Roman magistrates in charge of the city, and the culture and the gods of Rome would have prevailed in Philippi and false worship um, and these things. And what happened was that a a great general called Antony was in control of many of these cities. He was the head of the Roman army. He had Philippi with much of the rest of the empire under his control. But Another general arose called Octavian, who became a very famous um, Roman leader. And he defeated uh, Antony's army. And there was a great battle near Philippi. So Octavian, as it happened in the ancient world, he challenged uh, this other general. And if you defeated this other general, you then were given control of the whole army. Your troops then became Prominent, And each set of troops would have had their allegiance to their own general. So Octavian defeated um, Antony. And what Octavian did was, when he arrived in Rome in control, all of Antony's soldiers had all of the, the military accommodation in Rome. They had all of the apartments and lodgings and so on. And Octavian wanted to move them out of the way to give all of that property to his soldiers. And that's what he did. He moved his own soldiers into all of these homes in Rome. And he took these defeated soldiers of Antony and he replaced them and sent them to Philippi, down to Greece to live there. So they were forced to do that. So that will become important for us studying Philippians because... It's not just a city that arose naturally. It was done by design. This was a military town. There would have been ex-officers and soldiers living in this town who were fiercely patriotic 
uh, to Rome, who had been trained um, in the Roman army and who had, um, f- they would have followed the Roman gods and so on. So you have this great immigration, basically. You, they're all uprooted and sent down to Philippi, and Philippi is made a Roman colony, a kind of miniature Rome. So if you'd walked around Philippi, it was just a smaller version of Rome. We have that kind of thing today where we plant an embassy in another country or one country takes over a city in another country and and makes it American or British and it's British or American law that governs that place. That's what happened here. So if we're going to understand as Paul writes to this church, we need to know the kind of people he's writing to. This is These aren't people that know Judaism or believe in the God of Israel. Most of these people are just Romans by culture. Today we want to share the gospel and we're coming up against the culture. Paul had to do that too. These are people that would not have been immediately good listeners to what Paul had to say. So it's a Roman colony, Luke tells us here, a miniature Rome. And one more thing before we just leave that. That meant that most of the people in that city had something very precious, which was Roman citizenship. There were millions of people in the empire that didn't have that. But these soldiers had this. And that will become important later because they beat Paul and they don't realize that Paul has Roman citizenship. And Paul actually uses that in his wisdom to protect the church in Philippi. But these soldiers have the citizenship. One of them later on in Paul's life was about to punish Paul. And Paul says, do you know that you're about to strike a Roman? And, and the man stopped what he was doing. The centurion stopped and said, you're a Roman. How do you have this? With, with a large sum, I acquired this citizenship. And Paul says to him, well, I, I was born with it. But Paul had it from birth. Obviously, his father was a Roman. But you see how important this would have been. That if you had this Roman citizenship, this was something that people worked years for to buy and to be naturalized and have this. And it gave you a huge amount of rights and protection from persecution and these things. So Paul is going to that town with Luke and Silas and Timothy, to patriots, to well-educated, well-trained people who love Rome and whose allegiance is to Caesar, Paul has to go in there as a a Christian apostle and share the gospel with them. We'll see when we actually get to the epistle, we'll see more details of what kind of town it was and the different things that were in the town. But we see here that Paul has arrived and he's determined to get to work. So what does he do when he's in Philippi? Well, we see, firstly, that he breaks ground. And he had to do that every place he arrived from the first time. He breaks uh, the ground. In verse 13, what does he do when he arrives? On the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. On the Sabbath day... We went out of the city to the riverside. Now, this is Paul's routine when he arrives in Corinth, 
Athens, Antioch, wherever he is, he seeks out a hearing for the gospel. He's seeking believers, or at least those who generally have a fear of God or who believe in God. Paul's routine was always to go to the synagogues first when he arrived in a place. He would always go to the synagogues, and there were a couple of very straightforward reasons he did that. One was that God had commanded that salvation was to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And that command has not been abrogated, it's not been taken away. We, we may have lost that a bit in, in the modern world, um, but that's, a, that's the biblical truth. The salvation is for the Jew first. And even our own catechism tells us to have a special place in our hearts in prayer for the Jew and um, in giving priority to missions to the Jews. They are Christ's brethren, according to the flesh. Jesus is a Jew, and the covenant was given to the Jews, the children of Abraham, by the flesh. We're the children of Abraham by the Spirit. Praise God for that. We've been grafted in, Paul says, as a branch into a, a wild olive branch into a tree. But Paul's heart had this um, emotion and a, a compassion for the Jewish people who should know the Jewish Christ. So Paul knew that he must go there first. Jesus told his apostles that. Do not go to the Gentiles first, Jesus said, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Paul would arrive in a place, and the first thing he would think is, where are the Jews? Where is the synagogue? Where is God's word already read? Where are prayers already offered? Where is God already believed in, in some sense? Who has a responsibility towards God's covenant? I must find them. The other reason is not just to find Jews, but it's general wisdom that when you arrive in a place or you're put in a new workplace or you move to a new area, that you should seek out the place where God is already believed in in some way or where Christ's name is already confessed in some way. It may be confessed really and truly in real faith or it may not be real but there are churches that don't even hold to a true gospel they don't preach justification by faith and so on but if we're doing mission if the church is organizing if a denomination is organizing mission it makes sense to at least try and break ground where people are who already accept that there is a God, and they already accept that the Bible has something to say. They already accept that Jesus exists. I'm sure you can see that that's a sensible thing to do, to find like-minded people. That is a good principle in mission. When you're sent to a place where absolutely no one believes and are completely ignorant of these things, someone like John G. Payton or Hudson Taylor That is very difficult to break ground where a man and his wife move to a place and there's no one anywhere who's even seen a Bible. I'm sure you can imagine how difficult that work is. So if in God's providence there are people there who already have some sense of a God, it makes sense to at least go to them first 
and to try and bring the gospel to them and to teach them. And that's what Paul does. He's seeking God-fearers. He's seeking people that already believe something. He can't go to a synagogue in Philippi, obviously. We see that here. There's no mention of a synagogue or that he went to a synagogue. There's not Jews, really, in this place. This is a Roman colony populated with Roman officers, soldiers, and ex-employees of the Roman army. There is no synagogue. To comprise a synagogue, you needed at least ten men, heads of families. That was the minimum in which you were allowed to have a synagogue. So there's obviously no synagogue here. There's no mention of any men. There's no mention of those families. There's no mention of a central place of worship. So Paul, when he arrives, obviously finds lodgings for him and the three other men, and he's immediately interested and asks around about anyone who's worshipping God or anyone who's gathering for the worship of Jehovah. And lo and behold, there are some. Even in this place where there's no synagogue, there are some. In verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. So that's either that Paul knew that uh, the riverside was a place where people would usually go, or he asked around and he was told that there, there is a group that are going out of the city walls to a quiet place near the river, and they were meeting on the Sabbath day. Now that's important because it's the Sabbath day, we know that these people are praying to the God of Israel. They're doing it on that day. This is not Roman worship, but Jewish worship. And when it says that they are praying, and it says in verse 14 that Lydia was a worshipper of God, that doesn't mean these people were necessarily saved. It it doesn't mean that they had placed their trust in the sacrifice that God would provide in the Messiah, and that they had a personal relationship with him. All we can say is that at least it tells us that they were gathering to participate formally, outwardly, in Jewish worship. And we need to know that. I mean, Jesus sat with Nicodemus and said to him, you must be born again. Nicodemus worshipped a lot more than these women did. Nicodemus was a a student and a teacher of God's word and he prayed every day and he tithed and all these things but he didn't know God but it's still right to say in a general sense he was a worshipper of God he was doing it formally though his heart wasn't really worshipping God he was maybe seeking in some sense God and I think that at least is what's going on here these are people who are either, there might be a couple of Jews among them and Lydia's there too she's not a Jew we don't think, but they have embraced the truth that the God of Israel is the true God and that he must be sought and he must be prayed to each day and that on the Sabbath day you stop everything you're doing and you gather together to seek this God. So they are doing that on the Sabbath day. Just notice before we leave this point of Paul breaking this ground. Let's just see for a second that it tells us how important it is to gather on the Sabbath day. There's no church here. There's no session. 
there isn't a big organized synagogue here at all. And you don't see these people saying, well, there's no church, so what can we do? We'll stay at home and listen to sermon audio. Or we'll stay at home and we'll beam the service from John MacArthur's church into our home and that will be our church. For there is no church and we don't want to put the effort in to start one and so on. Just see the different attitude here than you often see in our current evangelical culture. These are people that are seeking something. They're not looking for excuses to not be involved or excuses to not worship God. They are going there. We don't even think there's any men. But they're making the effort. They get up on the Lord's Day and they walk a couple of miles outside the city and they spend a significant period of time praying together. I just think that's beautiful. And the Holy Spirit brushes that in there. And it says something to us about how important we should uh, take the worship of God and not, uh, not use things that seem to be obstacles as excuses to not give priority to the worship of God. And just notice too, I'm not going to labor this, but just again in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit says Sabbath day. And it's, it's given as a normal part of the worship of the church, a normal part of the life of the church, and of the life of the Christian. Paul makes sure he's there. These people make sure they're there. Lydia's a busy woman. We're about to see she's a businesswoman. And she's not traveling and doing her business. We don't know who she has at home. She's not using that as a reason to not be there. This is a woman who, though she has a, a big business, she gets up on the Sabbath day and she makes sure she is there to call upon the God of glory. And I think that that is part of the reason God has led Paul here. It's an answer to prayer. I think they needed this help. So just remember that. No matter what the condition of the church, it's tempting for us all. Never say there's no point going, or it's 50 50 this morning, I think I'll stay at home, or I don't need to be involved in a big way for the growth of the church. This church went from a few women to one of the most prominent churches in the Roman Empire in 10 years. And it was because of the enthusiasm of the people and their honoring of uh, being in worship and hearing God's word. So we see Paul breaking ground here and arriving, and he opens up the word. And what a moment it is for these women who have been struggling, meeting here by themselves in a fiercely opposite town, And it's not just someone who's heard the message or who heard Jesus speak. They're there at the river on the Lord's Day morning and they see some men arriving. And it's remarkable that it's it's the greatest preacher that's alive, that has been sent by God to them. What a moment for these women. What an opportunity to hear the truth and to learn from Paul. How gracious God is. And no matter what the size of the church, we never have any conception of what the Lord might do or who he might bring to us in any area of our life. Who he might place before us. What kind of family or Christian teacher could become a member of our church. We have no idea. And it's, a, it's an indictment always against our unbelief and our pride. We're always saying what wouldn't happen And we always think we know what to expect. And we're always undercutting God 
this is what we should expect. This is the way this will be. And when we plan this, this is the way that it will work out. And we just have no vibrant faith that the Lord does immense things through the most weak situations. We have to be open to that faith and belief. We have no idea how we might use a situation. So Paul breaks ground, and as he meets these women, secondly, he opens hearts. And it's not Paul that opens hearts, but God uses this weak situation. A man with the word and a small group of people in a Roman city, and the Lord works. The Lord opens hearts. Paul seems to take the lead here. And what does Paul say? We're in no doubt because we know from the rest of the book what Paul always shared. The death and resurrection of Christ. His fulfillment of prophecy by being raised from the dead to the right hand of the Father. The need for repentance and that Christ cursed on the tree forgives and remits all sin. And that we all have guilt upon us, including these women. And that that guilt can be blotted out. We know the kind of thing Paul preached. The need for the Holy Spirit. The coming of death. And the great day of judgment and the return of Christ. Paul always preached the same thing. It's wonderful to think of him who has discovered this for himself. In his own life. Discovered Christ. And is full with passion and enthusiasm to share this glorious message with these poor, needy sinners. And as he speaks, there is a woman that's highlighted among the women who are meeting there. And her name is Lydia, we're told. A certain woman, verse 14, named Lydia, listened. She heard Lydia, we're told, in the rest of the verse, was a seller of purple. This purple was an expensive purple dye that came from the shellfish of the Mediterranean. These shellfish were harvested, the dye was extracted from the body, and that dye was then all put together and used for the dyeing of fabrics and robes and cloaks for royalty and for the military. Lydia is from Thyatira, which is back over in Asia, where Paul has sailed from. She originally is from there, but has obviously moved to Philippi, at least temporarily, to work for her business. So this is a woman who's industrious and intelligent, has her own business, is traveling, and has this expensive item that she is trading in these great trade routes that went through places like Philippi. Now, she may have been in Philippi. I just thought of this right now, but she may have been in Philippi because there were so many soldiers and so on in Philippi. These are the kind of people who would have bought garments like this. But she's there, and she seems to have her business now in Philippi, and we're told she was a worshiper of God. So this is a a Roman woman or a Greek woman who had heard something of the God of the Jews and the hope of Israel and the word of God as it is in the Torah, the Old Testament Bible. 
and she's taken an interest in this. She's at least outwardly, in her mind, embraced that there is this God and that she is going to seek him and worship him and order her life that way. So that's what that means. We don't think she was born again, necessarily, because we're told after that the Lord opened her heart. Why would the heart need to be opened if she already knew the Lord? She is a formal worshipper who sees the value. We get that today. People see the value in um, Islam, for example, and there are Western women a lot of the time who embrace Islam to get rules and some kind of order for their life and ceremony because we need to worship something. There are people who join the Christian church. Maybe you're here, you believe in God, you you accept that Jesus exists, you even accept that the Bible is authoritative and yeah, you sing the praise of God and you might even go down on your knees and pray. That doesn't always mean that you know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you love the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's become your husband and that you've seen your need for his righteousness and seen your need for his blood to cover you from your daily and every second you're sinful. Your mind and your heart, every second as mine is, is sinful. It falls short of the glory and beauty and goodness of God. And that is our desperate need to know a saviour. Lydia didn't necessarily have that, and you might not either, but she is outwardly a worshipper of God. Now, she is hearing Paul. She is hearing Paul open out the need for the Lord Jesus Christ to be her Lord and Master and Saviour. And we're told that the Lord opened her heart. One of the most wonderful phrases in the New Testament. He opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. What is this opening of the heart? This is the sovereign and powerful, gracious act of God on someone's heart. The great miracle of God touching and opening the inner being and thoughts of a fallen sinner who's in darkness, the enclosed and locked heart that's born in sin and that's born not knowing God. The Spirit of God opens the heart. It's sovereign. Jesus said to that man I mentioned, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know from whence it comes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The mystery of the Spirit's work. We are so proud today. We will do this. We will share we will act towards a sinner. We will act towards the lost. Someone will come into our church and we want to immediately go near them and begin to tweak them and influence them and make a Christian out of them. And we've lost the sense of glory in prayer that it's the Lord alone who can change a heart. That it's his work and he will change the heart of everyone whom he wills to save. He turns the key of the heart. He knows the digital combination, the hundred-digit combination 
of a sinner's heart, the Holy Spirit knows the way in and how to open that heart. It says of our Savior that he has the keys of death and of hell, but he also has the keys to the human heart. Jesus knows the heart, and no heart can stand before him when he touches that heart and saves them. He does it, and the person is born again, and they find immediately a love for Christ that didn't come from themselves. He saves people. Why then, when we're sharing the gospel and we worship here and we hear the word preached and we share the Bible with people in our lives, why is it that that word is refused, the word of life? Why is it that it hits against a person time and time again and they can't see it and the word falls to the ground? It finds no way in to take root in the soul, to grow with fruit in that person's heart. Why does that happen time and time again? Because the Lord has not opened their heart. My dear friend, has the Lord opened your heart? Have you found that opening towards Christ in love? Have you experienced Jesus touching your heart and soul so that you would love him and serve him? Our catechism tells us that that call, that effectual call of grace, that God is pleased to use the word, but especially the preaching of the word, as a means to salvation. As you sit week by week under the preaching of the word, does it find a way in and bring life to your heart? Or does it hit your heart and fall like seed and die on the ground? Does it find a way in? Perhaps I can put it this way. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes by the word of God. And maybe you're sitting confused about this and you say, well, how do I know if I have faith? How do I know if I've heard in that way? How do I know if my heart has been opened? You're asking me, preacher, has my heart been opened? How do I know if it's opened? Well, the things that Paul preached will find a place in your heart and you'll know if it has been opened. Let me just say to you, if you're wondering if your heart has been opened, Do you know that God is glorious and majestic and holy and that he requires from you perfect holiness and purity? Do you know that the heart of a man and woman are guilty and defiled and unclean and even disgusting to the Lord of glory? Has he given you a sense of that sin that you see it and are horrified by it and begin to hate it have you seen that your life every day deserves God's judgment have you seen that God is perfectly holy but you're not and that your thoughts and words and your actions 
are not living up at all to the glorious law and nature of God. That your thoughts and words are falling short every moment. And have you seen that you need a robe of righteousness to cover and cleanse every thought, word, and action? And that it's only Jesus' thoughts and words and actions that can come upon a person that they can then stand before God at the end of their lives and God says, come into my kingdom. If you don't have Jesus' words and thoughts and actions upon you by his blood, God will not look at you when you die and say, I'm going to show grace to you. You weren't that bad a person. And you tried your best. You have to understand that as good and as loving and as gracious as our Father is, He prizes His own glory and holiness and His image in us so highly that He will not let what is filthy into His house. You need cleansed by Jesus' death and resurrection. Has my heart been opened? Have you sensed all of that? And do you see in Jesus that, that he willingly will give you all of that and make you righteous with God? And does that make you fall down and then say, I have nothing of my own. My life is not my own anymore. My life and death are in his hands. And I am going to spend all of my time now serving this Lord who has bought me and redeemed me. That's what happens when the Lord opens our hearts. Even for us Christians. The need for an open heart is not just when someone is saved. But I'm sure you've discovered your need for an open heart too. That the heart isn't often as open as it should be. It is true that the word comes by faith and saves a person. But for you and me, practically as a Christian, at any point in our lives, like right now, the word only ever reaches us properly when it comes by faith and willingness and humility. For our heart to be open to receive the word. As Paul preached it here, there, there may be someone like Lydia whose heart is open for the first time. But there may be believers hearing that word that it's bouncing off and falling to the ground. Our faith comes by hearing. Our holiness and our, our witness and our belief in Christ can only stay strong and can only be vibrant and effective in as much as we are continually under that word and receiving it. Like a water can is poured over a plant. Only so much as we're receiving are we growing? Our catechism says, question 160 on the word, 
What is required of those who hear the word preached? What is required of those who hear it preached? It is required that those who hear the word, that they attend upon it with all diligence and preparation and prayer and examine what they hear by the scriptures and receive it with faith and love and meekness and readiness of mind as the word of God. You hear that? Preparation, prayer, examining the word, receiving it with a love and appreciation and faith and a meekness and a readiness of mind. If we don't have a love for it, a meekness at the time, a preparation, a lowering, a readiness of mind and a humility, because it may need to rebuke us or challenge us and so on, if, if we don't come that way, the word will not find a way in. It needs to be received as his word. This passage in Acts is his word. This event in Lydia's life is a, is a practical manifestation of his word. It, it is authoritatively teaching us this morning. What Paul did and Lydia's response has authority over you and me. We must deliver the word as Paul does and we must receive it as Lydia does. It's a command to us to be ready and to receive it, not as the word of man, but as the word of God. Uh, But as he opens her heart to hear it, there's a little more than that, that she then has to respond to it. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul, to respond to the things spoken by Paul. This literally means to take heed to or to attend to immediately. To to be urgent um, about the word that is heard. It doesn't mean she was listening and she paid good attention. We sometimes think of that. Am I paying attention to the listening? When it says here she paid attention or she attended the things, it means that when she heard what Paul said, And it made her realize all the glories of what Christ had done. There was an immediate impetus within her to act on it immediately. And that's what always happens when the word really reaches us. It will always make us do something. To think a certain way. uh, To have certain affections for Christ and others. um, to, To put something right in our lives or to serve him in a certain way. It always will produce actions to take that step that Lydia takes here and again if you are wondering has the Lord opened my heart and what I said about that if it's ringing true with you that the Lord wrestles with you and you're aware of the things of Christ but your heart has not been fully opened or you feel opening You need to know that what Lydia did was not just listen, but then she did. She took a step to depart from sin, to depart from standing back, to depart from looking at Jesus from far away. Lydia took a step to to embrace Christ. Lydia spiritually put her arms around Christ. 
and let go of everything she had in her life. And she said, now I am yours. What should I do? How can I serve you? We can hear and listen and understand and even accept and say, I believe. But all of that means nothing if we're not willing to take that step. To hear it all but then not move towards Jesus means that the heart hasn't really been opened. And for us as believers, that same is true. When we attend with all diligence to receive the word with meekness, to love it and prepare and respect it as the word of God upon us, that will all fall to the ground if we walk out of here or walk away from our Bible reading and then forget it and and we're not willing to do it. How does that question in the Catechism close? To receive it with readiness of mind as the word of God and listen to this, to meditate on it, to converse about it, to hide it in our hearts and bring forth its fruit in our lives. That's what Lydia did. She attended to it. Is is that what I do? Is that what you do? When you hear in church the word of God, do you then meditate on it, confer upon it, hide it up in your heart, and then bring forth its fruit in your life? That is what happens when our hearts are open. All that he would open, anyone who's outside of Christ, that he would open their heart, and then that he would open our hearts fully as Christians, that we would never close off the heart from the word of God that's coming to us. So Paul broke the ground on the Lord's day with these women. He preached to them and shared with them. And the Lord marvelously opened Lydia's heart. I just want to add something before we close. That that action I spoke about there, thirdly, that action, we see it manifest in the next verse. That Lydia didn't just stay where she was. It says, then she and her household were baptized. And then she begged them saying, if you've judged me faithful, come to my house and stay. See how the catechism question is seen here in practice. It was laid up in the heart and the fruit was brought forth. It doesn't mean necessarily that Lydia was baptized there and then. We can make that mistake if we read it because Luke says, well, then this happened. But the way Luke writes, it may have been some days after this where Paul stayed in Philippi many days All it tells us is the Lord opened Lydia's heart as she listened. And then she and her household were baptized. That's important for us to understand. And remember that Lydia wants to be baptized. She sees her need of that. This is her being brought from being a worshiper generally of Jehovah. This is her becoming engrafted into the visible church of Christ, the new covenant baptism that symbolizes the Holy Spirit, whom Lydia didn't have. That baptism, we usually teach on child baptism, and I wish we would see more adult baptisms, that when someone truly comes to him, 
that the mark of that change is put upon them. That the mark of the washing and inundation of the Holy Spirit upon them to clean them by the blood of Christ is put on them. And that now means they belong to the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a, it's a sacrament of initiation into the body, the bride of Christ. That once that's put on them, that means they're in the body of Christ. It symbolizes Christ's uh, death and resurrection. His blood and his life-giving cleansing. His pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon them and the newness of life. That they are cleansed and they rise uh, from that new and fresh. And they now belong to the baptizer. We think of John as John the Baptist, but it's Jesus who is the baptizer. He baptizes Lydia, and now she belongs to him. And she wants to be baptized. She doesn't, she doesn't delay. She, she doesn't, she's not tempted by the Roman way of life or the Greek way of life. She embraces uh, Jesus. Now it says her house was baptized. She may have had children. She may have had servants. She may have had a husband. We don't know. Sometimes um, in these passages of Acts, you know, we can get a bit bogged down by wondering, um, well, if it's her house and she has children, is this a proof of infant uh, baptism? Now, it may be as straightforward as that. It, Luke may mean her children were baptized. But I, I think just to be wise we can say that if the Holy Spirit had wanted to specify that, he would have. So we shouldn't say more than what he says. What he's telling us here is it wasn't only her, but then her household was baptized. It may be that because of her, her children were given that mark too. Or she may have had a 12-year-old daughter who then believed as she did and was truly baptized as a Christian. Lydia may have had young children that were baptized as infants. Or Lydia may not be married and have no husband or children. And it may be that Paul then shared what had happened with her servants. And the servants in her home were baptized. But the idea is that when this happened to her, the church began to grow. She was baptized. Her household was baptized. Paul, later in the passage and through the preaching others are saved and they are baptized we see here a church growing through conversion and baptism the gospel is to spread in philippi in meadville or anywhere through the conversion of new adults who are baptized and then their friends who are baptized their relatives who are then baptized and then all of those people's children in the covenant who are baptized the church should grow through the sharing. As Lydia would say like the Samaritan woman, come hear about the man who told me everything I ever did. Her action is seen in wanting to be baptized. But let's leave these thoughts here for now. And may God uh, use these truths in our lives as we live them out uh, this coming week.